0: There are, of course, a lot of things that I love about hosting SSR. One of my favorite things, though, is being part of a guest's first experience with a new book, world, or series. This is exactly what happens on episode 91. That's right, listeners. We are all along for the ride as my guest reads her first ever Babysitter's Club book. We aren't talking about just any Babysitter's Club book, either. This one is a super special edition. There were 15 super specials published in total, and they came out periodically between regular installments of the Babysitter's Club series. Super specials are longer than your standard BSC book, they're told from a variety of viewpoints, and they tend to deal with large-scale events that affect the whole club. In super special number 7, Snowbound, the babysitters are all affected by a big snowstorm that stops the town of Stony Brook in its tracks. The book was published in 1991 and makes regular appearances in lists and roundups with titles like My Favorite Babysitter's Club Books of All Time. Based on the title and the brief description I've already given, you can probably make a pretty good guess about what's going to happen in this book. Yes, there's a blizzard, and yes, each of the babysitters gets stranded or stuck in a different situation. On this episode, my guests and I chat about each of those situations, consider which ones would be the most and the least manageable, and marvel at how much the world has changed since Snowbound was published in 1991. Snowstorms are a heck of a lot easier to weather in 2020, listeners. Because this was my guest Margaret's first experience reading a Babysitter's Club book, we also have some more general discussions about the series and, of course, about the babysitters themselves. Margaret Willison is a librarian, writer, and podcaster. You can follow her at Mrs. Friday Next on nearly all platforms, but she says Twitter is where she really shines. If you love what you hear from her on this episode, and I have a feeling you will, Check out her culture newsletter, Two Bossy Dames, and her TV podcast, Appointment Television. Links to all of that good stuff are available in the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com listen slash episode 91. There are plenty of other things to check out at www.ssrpodcast.com, so I would encourage you to take a look if you haven't been there in a while. You'll find links to the resources and book recommendations my guests and I share about in each episode, along with my weekly blog posts, our SSR swag, and a support button that you can click to learn more about becoming part of the Patreon community. Patrons contribute a few dollars every month to help the podcast keep going strong, and they get some very cool rewards in return. You can support SSR and Patreon for as little as $1 per month, and the more you give, the more rewards are up for grabs. You can also learn more at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast. Thanks so much to all of the patrons listening to this episode. Looking for other ways to support the SSR podcast? Leaving a five-star rating or review on iTunes is always your best bet. More ratings and more reviews mean that more people can find the podcast. I am always on a mission to further grow and cultivate this book-loving community, and I so appreciate your help in doing that. Plus, let's be real, those ratings and reviews are a lot of fun to read, and they make me so happy. It also makes me so happy to be able to interact with listeners on social media. We are at Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. Let me know you're tuning into this episode by taking a screenshot of it on your platform of choice and sharing that screenshot to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me at ssrpod. For the last few weeks, you've heard me mention that I'm recording episodes in the midst of COVID-19 and the social distancing and self-quarantine measures that we're all taking as a result. It's a scary, difficult time for so many of us, and I know that everyone has been affected in their own way. I'm sending you all my love and hoping that you're able to stay safe and healthy. If, like me, you're feeling a little helpless as all of this unfolds, you might consider lending your support to small businesses who are struggling while their doors are closed for the foreseeable future. As book lovers, I know we all have a heart for independent booksellers. Buying Audiobooks from Libre FM is one way to show your support for these indies. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libra.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month with code SSRPOD. Hang in there, everybody. Time to get snowbound with the BSC. Let's go to the show. freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Margaret. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a babysitter's club day. It's a Sunday morning. It's the Sunday morning of Daylight Savings, so I'm a little sleepy. I also had a friend's 30th birthday last night, so if my voice is like a little tired, everybody, I'm sorry. But there's really (laughs) no better way to combat that sleepy feeling than to talk about a babysitter's club, and it's a babysitter's club super special edition, so we are not (laughs) messing around here. No, we we took this we took this very seriously. Yeah, we're not just gonna do a BSC. We're gonna do a BSCSS. Is the full acronym in the uh, Babysitters Club world that I'm learning is just like the super fandom, even all these years later.
1: Yeah, this is gonna be a really interesting journey for me because. I never read the Babysitters Club books when I was a kid. So this is actually the first time I've ever read a Babysitters Club book.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Do you remember like why you chose not to read them as a kid? Like, I'd love to hear a little bit more about yeah. that, and then maybe why you opted to to read one of them now with me. I opted to read them to not read them as a kid because I was a huge snob. And I didn't think that any series
1: fiction especially that like everybody else in my grade was reading was any good. Like I just assumed it would be really dumb. And I will also say that at that age, I was really more into like fantasy novels. Like I read Edward Eaker's Half Magic books and The Golden Compass and Tamora Pierce's books. So, you know, if it didn't have dragons, it was already going to have a hard time captivating me. And if I could make myself more distinctive by refraining, I was invested in that. I've grown up to be less of a, jerk. (laughs) Um, And I've really come around on the message that if something is popular, it can't be good, especially that if something is popular with women, it can't be good. And that's led to me revisiting a lot of things in my life from, uh, you know, top 40 pop to romance novels, uh, which I now read a lot as an adult. But it hadn't caused me to revisit The Babysitter's Club. But when you suggested either
0: that or the Sweet Valley High books. I was like, well, it's time. It's finally time. Yeah, here we are, and we're past the, you know, we we can get past the, there's no dragons on the cover. On this cover, especially we we just have some sort of like sprinkling of snow that of course is going to end up being much more serious than what we see on the cover, but no dragons. And I'm so glad that you decided to have this first experience with me. I'd love to know what your first impression was as you were getting into it. This is a really cool conversation because I think you're the first person that I've read a Babysitter's Club book with for the podcast that's coming to the series for the first time. So I'm like really eager to know what your first impressions were. Did you know anything about the series before you started? Okay.
1: I um, watched—there was, like, a movie adaptation uh, in, I don't know, 1996 or 1997, and that I watched with Larissa Olnayek and other people. Yes. And, like, you know, I live in the world. Right. I know what the Babysitter's Club is. I've I've read the memes on the internet, and I can sort of infer from them, you know, what it means to be Claudia Kishi or what it means to be Marianne Spear. Right. I think one of the most impressive things that I came away from this with is how— unproblematic most of it was. You know, like this is a
0: 30-year-old book or thereabouts, right? This book in particular was published in 1991, but it was after the series had already been going for years and years. So this book has really has legs and has a long lifespan.
1: Yeah. And it just like already at the outset, you know, you have diversity in the group of girls that are being presented. You have uh, thoughtful takes on how that diversity impacts them. I'm not going to say that it's like woke- by today's standards right. necessarily, but it's not not woke,
0: which is very impressive. There's efforts um, made that you don't see in a series like Sweet Valley. Like Sweet Valley has right. absolutely no diversity. Um, and this book, you know, while it's maybe not what we would like to see in 2020 or what kids authors or YA authors today would, would do, um, there's like a really healthy attempt made, which I appreciate.
1: Yeah, it's grounded and all that, but it's not didactic. And you can even have, you know, with how Stacy has to manage her diabetes and that being a regular feature, you're even getting into like the space of somebody who's, she's not disabled, but you know, she's managing an ongoing medical condition in a way that would have been rarely visible in books at that time and continues to be rarely visible today, especially in just like standard issue commercial fiction. We want you to buy 86 of these books. Books. books yes
0: yes and i think stacy takes a lot of heat now or a lot of people that are very involved in like babysitters club commentary there's a lot of podcasts that cover these books exhaustively and there are all of these inside jokes in those communities where like Stacy's kind of only defining characteristic is that she's the one with diabetes, which I think is sure. true to a point. But at least that's here. Like at least we're getting a character who, as you said, is dealing with something that's different than all of her friends, and she's handling it for the most part pretty well, I think. Yeah. You know, this book, you know, is a
1: big is a big growing moment Ooh. for her where <laughs> she's stranded in a in a car and and can reassure her single mom that uh that she does in fact carry her insulin pack with her everywhere. And I would say she has another top line quality, which is being uh, very fashionable because they end up stuck in the snow because she insists on driving to the fancy mall to get a perm done. The girl's got to have
0: a perm. I mean, what are you going to do at the dance if you don't have a perm in 1991? Exactly. I mean, just hang your head in shame, I think. I agree. And what's great is the issue isn't
1: even she won't have a perm. The issue is she'll either have a perm from the fancy mall or she'll have to get a perm from the right. inferior Stony Brook hairdresser. <laughs> right. That would be so embarrassing. We would never let Stacy go out in public like that. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, I did like Stacy has imbibed some of the garbage messaging about makeup where she's just like the real goal is to have your makeup look like you're not wearing any and like have your
0: perm look like you don't have a perm. And that is even harder and more expensive. Yeah, I like the way like she described that. She was like, "I know this is going to sound weird and crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, this is going to blow your mind." But the best thing about makeup is that you shouldn't even look like you're wearing it. Yeah, that's like you know the the natural look. Um, she would be really into Glossier, time. I'm oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, she maybe she is the fa- the secret founder of Glossier. In my like, sometimes when I think about where the babysitters would be now if they were mm-hmm. real characters, she's somehow behind Glossier.
1: I should say, uh, if my voice sounds a little tired, it's because I have a slight cough and a slight fever, which hopefully isn't coronavirus. But luckily, we're recording through computers, and Allie is nowhere near me, and you listening at home are nowhere near me, so I can't get any of you sick.
0: Yeah, listeners, we're recording on March 8th, uh, so for context, we're really in the thick of the corona conversation. And so we will understand any raspiness. Thank you. My favorite thing about the beginning of this book, um, and something that's a little bit different than the other Babysitter's Club books that I've come to again for this series, is um, that we're introduced to all of this through a newspaper clipping from the Stony Brook local paper. And it's talking about this blizzard and the 28 inches of snow that they got. And Christy, in all of her enterprising ways, writes to the editor of the paper. And excuse any page-turning listeners, but I I did want to just go ahead and read um, the letter that Christy writes because I think it's so cute. And um, for those who don't know, my day job is as a journalist and an editor. um, And so I just love Christy for writing this. She writes, Dear Mrs. Tan, hi, my name is Christy Thomas. Well, I guess you already knew that from the return address. I am 13 years old and I'm an eighth grader at Stony Brook Middle School. I am writing you to find out if you're interested in an article on that blizzard we had last week the article you published in your newspaper after the storm was very informative, but it didn't tell what happened to people during the blizzard. My friends and I had lots of adventures and different experiences. One of my friends even got stranded in a car and almost froze to death. Some funny things happened too. <laughs> I like the transition there, or the lack thereof. My friends and I are very close, and we share our lives with each other. So after the blizzard, we each wrote down how we weathered the storm. Get it? Weathered the storm? Haha. <laughs> uh-huh. ha. Um, anyway, <laughs> then we passed our stories around so we could read them. The story are fascinating. Really, I'm not bragging, so I thought other people might want to read them too. If you would like to print a young people's account of the blizzard, just let me know. I will be happy to edit my friend's stories and make them into an article. It can be however long you want. I won't hold any rights to the story, but I would appreciate it if you would print By Christy Thomas under the big headline that reads Snowbound. Yours sincerely, Christy Thomas. P.S. If you want to pay me, I wouldn't mind. How much do reporters (laughs) earn? I won't be too picky. P.P.S. Do you have any children? If so, I know a good babysitting service. (laughs) There's so many things I like about this. So first of all, I feel like Christy Thomas is a little bit ahead of her time on like the 24-hour news cycle and the fact that like in 2020, if there was a huge blizzard, not only would you get the story about the blizzard itself, but in all of the different TV news and Twitter, like all the different content that we're seeing. After a single news event, you would get an angle of every single person that had been affected by it. You would have every personal story. You would have yeah, a kid talking have, like, about it. Yeah, and Chrissy Teigen's Twitter reactions. Right. You get the whole thing. So I love, first of all, that Christy is like very ahead of her time on like what the people actually want to read after a blizzard. <laughs> so yep. true, right? She also is very enterprising, as always. She's such an entrepreneur. I love that she is like, I'm happy to edit them. Like, here's all the content, but you let me know how I can help. I like that she's asking upfront how much money she's going to earn um, she's like trying to negotiate it and she's even as like you know a little side note at the end saying like oh also like I have this other business um, and I'd <laughs> love to help you. So I, I just love Christy. And I know that there's been a lot of conversation more recently with the Babysitter's Club being this early feminist um, series and sort of all of the wonderful messages about being independent, starting businesses, being entrepreneurs that this series kicked off for kids all of these years ago. And I think that even in that single letter, we get a real taste of that.
1: Yeah, it is really impressive in that respect. Also, it's just, it gives you a sense of how different our understanding of, like, at what age people are capable has become, because, like, I don't think 13-year-olds are understood to be, like, quite as... Like, I didn't start babysitting, I think, until I was a little older than that, 14, and I certainly wouldn't have been left alone overnight with many children right? Unless I was like 16, 17. And here the babysitter's older kids are maybe 14 and their junior members
0: are 11, which I I think is just like, it's, it's interesting to sort of see how that's changed over time. I think that's a really interesting observation and something that I was thinking about a lot as I was reading, as you mentioned, there's, there are a few babysitters actually that are staying overnight with their charges in this book. Um, Two of them, because it was planned, and one of them, it was sort of like a last-minute thing because of the snow. And I had moments where I was like, this seems really unrealistic. Like, is it (laughs) irresponsible of these parents to leave their multiple children with a 13-year-old? But to your point, maybe it's just a change in how we perceive kids at different ages today. Do you think maybe there's a shift in, like, the maturity of your average 13-year-olds maybe, Um, but I went back and forth on that throughout the book. I certainly would not have felt comfortable staying with little kids when I was 13 and definitely not 11. I mean, these 11-year-olds have a lot of responsibility too. Yeah, they really do. It's pretty impressive in that respect. I think one of the other things that really struck me
1: as I was reading this is how much of the book is exposition. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially given that, presumably, if you're reading, you know, the super special number seven, like you've read all of the regular books and the previous six super specials. So, like, were
0: you a Babysitter's Club reader when you were a kid? I didn't read the series straight through, but I definitely uh-huh. read whichever ones were on the shelf. Like if there was a Babysitter's Club book available to read, I read it. I wouldn't say that I was like a real devoted fan, but I read I read pretty much anything I could get my hands on as a kid. And, so, <laughs> and this was a series that sort of made the cut at different periods of my life.
1: How did you respond to the exposition dumps? And I also get the impression that they tended to be like almost word for word the same. It, it reminds me of, um, like I, I watched The Bachelor yes and like as you go into ad break he'll be like coming up on the bachelor and they'll be like these things are happening and then as you come back from the ad break they'll be like previously on the bachelor and there's those summaries and i'm just like could we just drop all of that chris harrison like i was also here four minutes ago i still remember which of these women
0: stole the other woman's champagne champagne (laughs) side note big week coming up for the bachelor also very excited (laughs) (laughs) you have to get better because you have a lot of bachelor to watch this week that's true. <laughs> many, many hours. Yeah, I mean, I think I wasn't really phased by it as a kid because I, I think that that was, like, the format expected in a lot of these series. The same thing happens in Sweet Valley where, like, in every installment – of the series, there's like a few paragraphs in the first chapter that say like, Jessica is the wild twin, Elizabeth is the calm, smart twin (laughs) Um, and in the Babysitter's Club every single time you get a lot of information about like which babysitter is which and like how old everybody is and sort of what everybody's defining quality is. As the series goes on and there are more babysitters added because in the first book there's only four. There's four founding members. Dawn comes in later or no, maybe Stacy comes in later. I I lose track but in the beginning it definitely comes in later, because they right. talk about her moving to Stony Brook from right. California. Yeah, but there are all these other characters, and Mallory and Jesse certainly haven't been brought in as junior members until later on. So as the series builds, and they have boyfriends, and more complex family structures, and all of these other things, that exposition gets increasingly longer, but I think it just didn't phase me because that's how a lot of the series that I read were structured. I do think that now a lot of people who loved the series as a kid kind of joke about that exposition. I found uh, one of the blog reviews that I found about this particular book this morning talking about Snowbound and the blogger sort of tongue-in-cheek says Claudia gets the explain-a-character chapter here where we are reminded mm-hmm. that Mallory is white and Jesse is black, Stacy has diabetes, and that Claudia and Stacy are sophisticated, never <laughs> (laughs) Forget. Um, So I do think that now, in hindsight, we all look back at some of these series and we're like, did we really need to know that full? Expository paragraph every time. But maybe some kids were like me and kind of came in and out at different points. As an adult, though, you're like, really? Like, it does have that Chris Harrison air to it.
1: I mean, as an adult who'd never read any of the other books, I was like, well, this is great. Yeah. You're like, (laughs) hey, I now understand what's (laughs) happening here. But as an adult, I was like, geez, if I had been a child reading this, I would have been so annoyed. Or maybe not. Maybe, you know, I think that there must be a certain amount of comfort in the repetition.
0: I was going to say that, too. I think there's something comfortable about it. That, like, okay, I'm coming back to these characters that I know. And even if maybe I forget because I read another book or two in between, like, it's okay because I'm going to be reminded and I won't miss out on anything. Right. Um, You'll be able to follow all of this stuff pretty naturally. Yeah, so...
1: I was impressed with all of that stuff. I also like the uh, dramatic tension that's built in from the beginning. Because, like, you know, basically what's going to happen to some of the people, right? But particularly the question of, like, one of our people was, like, caught in, like, a car and, like, almost froze to death. And there are, like, two people who go out driving in the snowstorm. And you're like, which one is it going to be? That's true. Is it going to be Dawn on her way to the airport? Or is it going to be Stacy on her way to the mall? And I was like, probably Stacy Because at the beginning of Stacy getting in the car, her mom was like, are you wearing, like, enough clothing for 20? degree weather. Right, have you seen like, enough? no, but I look cute. Right. Shut up, mom. Was like,
0: <laughs> like, obviously, Stacey is going to be the one who uh, gets caught in the snowstorm. Because she has a lesson to learn, and she needs to learn to be a little nicer to her mom. And they need to have a bonding <laughs> moment, if you ask me. So why don't we go through each babysitter, because they all are kind of on their own special journeys here in this book. I did want to note quickly that one, one of the reasons that you chose this particular book is because I sent you a link to this article in Book Riot um, that lists the this particular journalist's top 21 babysitters club books, a definitive, objective, unbiased guide. And I just wanted to share what she had to say about this book uh, sort of to set up the conversation that we're going to have. She says, hands down, my favorite super special. I love every single subplot in this, getting stranded in the middle of nowhere and being rescued by a stranger, being stranded overnight at the airport, babysitting all the pikes for two nights and running out of food, being stuck at a dance studio. Man, if I had to pick just one favorite BSC book and not a top 21, I think this one would be it, which is a pretty serious endorsement. Yes. When I read that, I was like, I think that's the one I've got to read. Yeah. You're like, I'm in. I'm totally in. So let's start with Christy because we've spoken briefly about Christy already. She, of course, is setting up this whole situation with the letter to the editor. And there is a lot of talk going on around Stony Brook about two things. First, there's this potential snowstorm coming. But of course, nobody believes that it's happening because nobody ever believes that the snowstorm is coming, especially if the snowstorm has been predicted several times and has yet to come. I was glad
1: that they did that part, because that was the only thing that made it plausible that so many people would continue on with like, we're going to take a day trip to New York. Right,
0: like, we don't even need to pay attention. Who cares about the Mm -hmm. weather? These weather reporters have no idea what they're doing. Um, So Christy is like, okay, whatever, it's never going to happen. But they're also very excited because there's a middle school dance, the big winter wonderland dance, which I thought was so relatable. And I remember when I was in high school, we also had I don't think it was called the Winter Wonderland Dance. I think it was called, like, the Snowball. And it was always (laughs) in February. And I think every year there was panic, whether it was founded or not, that like oh what if it snows for snowball like we're gonna be screwed and then everything's ruined and so that whole storyline really resonated with me and my high school self.
1: Mm-hmm. I also like that um, Stony Brook Middle School is regularly represented by the words like SMS. Yes, so it's like oh it's like it's a text messaging system, right? Which <laughs> like is really SMS what we needed.
0: Snowball. We needed that in this book. Also, I was looking for the SMS text messaging system that would have come in handy <laughs> yeah. for a lot of these characters. So Christy's subplot is sort of tame. She happens to have a free afternoon, which she rarely has. They've decided to cancel the babysitter's club meeting for Wednesday. So she invites her. He's not really her boyfriend, or she's, like, not ready to call him her boyfriend. But, like, let's be real. He's her boyfriend. Yeah. Bart. 100% her boyfriend. But she's being very, very weird about it, which I guess is kind of appropriate if you're that age. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I remember having that feeling, except I was like much older when I was having those feelings. I was like 16 and was like, I don't think he's my boyfriend. I'm so uncomfortable.
1: I also remember having feelings like I would have been very uncomfortable discussing at 14, you know, like whether I was dating or not with my parents. But, you know, that's why I wouldn't invite my boyfriend over to the house. Very silly. You got to think it through a little bit more, Christy. Like, either you should feel uncomfortable about the fact that you have this person who's maybe your boyfriend and then therefore not invite him over for dinner or just like be chill about it. a lane. Either Either way is fine. Just pick a
0: lane. Right. Your siblings are only teasing you because it works. Right. They wouldn't care if you didn't care. Exactly. One of my favorite things about Christie's relationship with Bart, though, is that one of the primary reasons that they seem to, like, have feelings for each other is that they both like hanging out with younger kids. Like, they bonded over <laughs> coaching, like, youth sports. Like, everything is strange. about babysitting in this world. We only like boys that like to babysit. We love being around small children. And that's, I mean, that's something that I always am looking for in this bo- these books, especially because I've read a few of them now over the last few years, is, like, how many times are the authors going to put these girls... In situations where they have to even babysit unexpectedly and so that that happens a lot in this book too (laughs) so christy invites bart over and they're going to have dinner and watch movies and one of the things that i liked format wise about the book is that we sort of have as always there's like different entries and different chapters told from the perspective of each babysitter and the way that the book is structured is that like each babysitter comes to a key realization kind of at the same point so we get one chapter um, from each babysitter's perspective in which the snow begins. And then we get one chapter from each babysitter's perspective in which the phone lines go out and the electric, you know, the power goes down, all of those things. So I like that we kind of get to check in with each babysitter at all of these key moments. I think that works really well and it builds attention, yeah. as you mentioned. So for Christy, you know, she has Bart come over and as you mentioned, and we were talking about like her siblings are making fun of her and it's super uncomfortable. And um, she has dinner with her boyfriend and her family. And it's like, I don't know. I think we've all kind of been there to some extent, whether it's a boyfriend or a new friend where you just feel super self-conscious about your family and you're like, I don't even even want to be part of this. And then (laughs) Bart decides that he can't go home because when the snow starts, it's too dangerous. Like, he can't walk home, even though Stony Brook (laughs) appears to be a very small town. Real mixed messages on that front. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But Christy's dilemma in this snowstorm is that Bart has to crash at her house and she suddenly is faced with the reality of what happens when... A potential love interest has to see you in the morning like without makeup. The irony is that like Christy doesn't wear makeup anyway. Like that's kind of the beauty of Christy is that like she doesn't really think about how she looks. She kind of has that quote unquote tomboy persona throughout this series. And I love that like all of a sudden just because it's morning she's like wait. (laughs) I have to change. I mean, it makes me kind of sad for her because the beautiful thing about Christy is that generally she doesn't focus on these things or fixate on these things. But I did think that it was sort of silly from an adult perspective that like all of a sudden she's like, well, I just woke up. So everything has to be different now. (laughs) Yeah. What did you think about her
1: storyline? I mean, as I said, one of the things that struck me is just like how ill adept she was at handling the discomfort that she felt around her boyfriend, but then sort of how self-inflicted that discomfort was. And I thought that it was sort of funny that you have that trajectory where she goes from defining herself as a tomboy to, like, panicking and applying all of this makeup before uh, her boyfriend wakes up. But I think that that's honestly very plausible. Like, I think that that's a really normal arc where, you know, you sort of go from being a young person who's, like, not particularly aware of your appearance to being like, oh, no, like now I'm a girl and like, I have to know how to do this thing to my hair. I have to know how to use mascara. I have to know how to use blush. All of that kind of stuff. And just like that awareness of your appearance that comes upon you at a certain age, I think it's an interesting look at that dynamic. But yeah, I also just thought that Bart was like super great and chill. I just didn't know. I didn't know why she was
0: so worried. So worried. And I love that she like spent all of this time doing her hair, doing her makeup. And then there's a line that was like, oh, and that only took her an hour and a half. (laughs) Like how long did she think it was supposed to take? it really should not take that long. Um, it but the not. whole thing reminded me a little bit of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel in the first season and <laughs> yes. those moments that I loved. Unfortunately, I've sort of fallen off the Maisel wagon over the last season or so. But in the first season, one of my favorite details was that. Mrs. Maisel wakes up like an hour or an hour and a half before her husband to like perfect her appearance so that he thinks that she wakes up looking a certain way. And that was very much what Christy was doing in this book. Right. Only
1: Midge is wearing that makeup all of the time, but is trying to, you know, uh, Stacey would recommend make it appear as though she's never wearing makeup. (laughs) Christy never wears makeup,
0: but suddenly decides she has to appear in makeup first thing in the morning. Right. She's like, this is just how I hang out around my house. This is how I always look. But when I leave the house is when I take my makeup off.
1: All the characters slept worse than I would have expected of small children. Um, Particularly, is it Marianne, who is over at uh, Mallory's house? She, like, doesn't sleep at all for the
0: entire book, practically. (laughs) I know. It makes me sad. Because I've only, like, stopped being able to sleep since I became an adult. I used to sleep (laughs) great under any circumstance. Same. I mean, I still sleep great under most circumstances, but just the same. It's like Anna and Martin, let them enjoy it. Let them enjoy that sleep as children and tweens and babysitters. Mm-hmm.
1: who is your favorite babysitter in the club? Did you have one when you were a kid? And like, do you have a different
0: one now? Great question. As a kid, I really liked Claudia and Stacy because they were mm-hmm. like cool right. um, and sophisticated. Now as an adult, and as I've had a couple of these conversations for the podcast, I've realized that like, I, I think I have the greatest appreciation as an adult for Christy. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I relate to Christy a lot as an adult. As a kid I really saw myself as a Marianne because I was shy and mostly focused on school and that was kind of my thing. But as a grown up I kind of think that I'm more of like a Christy Marianne hybrid. Did you relate to any of the babysitters more than others? Um I got a tiny sense of them in this book. And I would say probably Claudia is in the space,
1: but They're all, you know, like you're really only getting top notes from any of them in this particular book. Right. And that means that it's a very sort of broad characterization. So there wasn't any one where I was like, oh, like I'm such a, what's it? Which is too bad because it would have been great if I could have come out of this being like,
0: oh my God, I'm such a Don. Right. You could have bought all of the swag. Like you could be wearing a hat that was like (laughs) Don.
1: Right. Exactly. Just, you know, like I I participate in. Uh, Hogwarts house sorting discourse really heavily. Mm -hmm. And it just would have been nice to be able to get like a new dimension with like a babysitter's club sorting discourse. But it sounds like I'll really have to read more books to get that.
0: Yeah, I mean, after, I mean, you only need a couple though, because every time you're going to get that exposition. And so it'll drill into your head all of the details that you need to know about each of the girls. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful. Yes, it is definitely helpful. <laughs> so let's talk about Claudia. In my opinion, Claudia had sort of the most forgettable subplot in this 100%. book. So I don't think yeah. you need to spend too much time on her. She is, not surprisingly, babysitting when in doubt. Many of these girls can be found babysitting. <laughs> yep. um, she's with the Perkins girls, who I think we see in a bunch of other books. I think they're sort of like her favorite kids to babysit. We did an episode on Claudia and the Sad Goodbye a couple of months ago, which I'll link uh, in the show notes for this episode. But I think she was spending a lot of time with the Perkins girls in that book as well. And like the big thing that happens to Claudia is that she ends up having to get stuck overnight at the Perkins' house, which was unexpected. Um, she was supposed to go home at her normal time, but the parents couldn't get home from whatever like party they were attending. Um, and she loses the Perkins dog, Chewy, which was really scary. Um, and I felt for her, A, because I love dogs and it's just upsetting to think about any dog getting lost, but B, like, Super upsetting, like really stressful for you to be the 13-year-old taking responsibility for a family and their pets and their children and for you to maybe have lost one of them in a snowstorm. Yeah, she
1: was not nearly as panicked
0: about that as I would have been. Same. Yeah, she was like, welcome (laughs) back. I would have been for freaking out. I would have been too. And he had been in the basement the whole time, which was like the ha-ha, like how crazy is that? Like, (laughs) um, that was kind of the punchline. But yeah, I don't really have that much to say about her. Um, Her dad comes to check in on them, which was kind of cute. Um, Again, like really inconsistent throughout this book about like who's able to travel within the bounds of Stony Brook and who's not. Um, Her dad seems to have been able... By what methods. Yeah, by what methods? her dad seems to have been able to come over quite easily, but like, where were Mr. and Mrs. Perkins, and why couldn't they come home? Um, But yeah, she was fine, they found the dog, everything was okay. Mallory and Marianne were also babysitting, but they had some more zany adventures. Mallory's family is really big, that's kind of one of her defining characteristics, and because she's only 11, when her parents go out of town for the night to go to New York City, she's not allowed to stay home with her siblings by herself. They're like, oh, you know, we need a 13-year-old. Like, 11 (laughs) is much too young, but a 13-year-old can Handle this responsibility for the night.
1: Can look after our seven children. Can you imagine? I couldn't do that. No, now. I cannot imagine. I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't
0: have felt qualified to do that at like any. <laughs> No, never. There's never a time that I think I little would have qualify. Time. No, never, never, never. So Marianne's like, sure, I'll just come and be the responsible adult. And there are all of these hints that the author puts out for us early on as the Pikes are getting ready to go out of town, or Mrs. Pike is like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I haven't had time to go to the grocery store. Like, I'm so sorry. The pantry is so bare. Like, she says it so many times where I was like, of course you're going to run out of food. Um, I wish that there had been a little bit more mystery there, but... That's what happens. They, of course, are stuck there overnight. Marianne's dad comes over to check on them, too, which is nice. But the big thing is that, like, the kids don't have anything to eat. And so the girls are forced to get creative, which I actually thought I would have loved as a kid because their decision is that, like, we're just going to empty the freezer and the kids just get to eat, like, ice cream and frozen pizzas for the whole time. (laughs) Yep. I would have been thrilled. It's a dream. Yeah, it's roughly how I eat
1: now, so. (laughs) Just being a grown-up, really. Right, exactly. And then we also get the, like, best boyfriend of the book award goes to Logan. Love. Because on the next day, once they finished all the ice cream and frozen pizza, he cross-country skis over (laughs) with, like— peanut butter and bread and bananas for peanut butter sandwiches. And it's it's very cute.
0: Yeah, it's very hardcore of him to like strap on his cross-country skis and strap the food to his back and just like trudge through the blizzard to get to his girlfriend. Logan is, he's always my favorite boyfriend in all of the books that I've read so far. He just seems to like really have it together.
1: Seems like a good egg. I, I, was, I was impressed. Yeah. I would say the second best boyfriend in the book is uh, Quint. Oh, yes love Quint. Who is in Jessie's storyline. Uh, Jessie is a ballerina and she gets stranded at ballet rehearsal for the Nutcracker and ends up like the ballet teachers, one, have hilariously stereotypical French accents written out in the text. Yeah, it's kind of distracting bold, but, there. but funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the dancers. <laughs> but also seem to be like for educators of children extremely ill-equipped to actually deal with children in any respect. 100%. So this like eleven-year-old ballerina takes on responsibility for looking after all of the children who get stranded at the dance studio,
0: which is wild. Well, because of above all else, she is a babysitter. I mean, right? Even if she is a dancer, she's primarily a babysitter, so she will always jump into action. One of the things I liked best about that was because was that. While Jessie was, like, comforting the kids who are upset that they can't reach their parents and they're, like, stressed that they have to stay overnight at the dance school, Jessie's handling it and, like, calming them down and hanging out with them. And there's one line where she's like, where are the older kids? Like, they're in the other room, like, gossiping and, like, eating pizza. And it was, like, so judgmental that Jessie was, like, the 11-year-old who can't even get over the fact that the other older kids, who are probably older than she is, like, can't be bothered to babysit and spend time with the little kids. I know. They're just really, they have a calling, These babysitters. Yes, they are. They are exactly where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I think that I would have loved getting stranded at a dance school, and I think a lot of kids would love getting stranded in like whatever setting or environment they like do the thing that's their thing.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I would have been thrilled, especially like none of these kids are like. Right? Like they should all be sufficiently old that they can make it through without their like doll and without their parents. So it's a little interesting to me that so many of them were as upset as they were. And I would say that Jesse had caused me more upset than she was because her big sort of like additional factor is that her like boyfriend from New York, Quint, who I think, did they meet him in another super
0: special? Yeah, we're actually covering that super special. When this episode drops, it will be dropping, I think, in two weeks. So in two weeks, we're talking about New York, New York, which is another super special. And I'm assuming that that's where Jesse and Quint meet.
1: It does seem likely. Um, but... <laughs> He is also a dancer or a dancer, you know, on on how you would pronounce it yourselves. And as far as she knows, he's like stranded at the train station because his train arrives right in the middle of this blizzard where like no cars can get anywhere. And she can't get a hold of anybody because the telephones go out. So. She's being very chill about it. I was pretty impressed. And then he just like shows up at the dance studio because she had the presence of mind to be like, oh, nobody will be able to get out in this snowstorm. So I'll just ask for directions to the dance studio and walk there. Could have gone very poorly for Quint. He's a dancer. He doesn't have a lot of body fat to keep him warm, I imagine. But it worked out. He made it to the dance studio and then he's there to help her put all of the small children to bed with no assistance from
0: the dance teachers. Because he too has natural babysitting talent, which is part of why they are probably going to have a beautiful love story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I have some other questions about Jesse and Quint, because it seems as though their relationship is the most serious of any of the like love matches happening in this book. And right. Jesse, as we've mentioned, is only 11. And I, I did find some um, more like tongue-in-cheek commentary about this book in some blogs this morning <laughs> where I think Jesse's parents are generally kind of on the stricter side throughout this series. And uh-huh. so a few bloggers that I read were like, uh, I'm sort of confused as to, like, why the Ramses would be so cool having Jesse's boyfriend come, like, stay at their house for a dance, let alone her even having a boyfriend. And, like, he's a long-distance boyfriend, which I think sort of naturally makes the relationship more serious. Like, if you're committing to somebody long-distance... And you're having to stay in touch with them, especially in nineteen ninety one when like you're having to use landlines and like write letters. This is a big deal that they have this relationship. And yes, he's like a pretty great boyfriend, but it seems like a little serious for being eleven. I I don't wanna like very serious for being eleven. Yeah, I don't wanna be all like puritanical about it, but it seems a little intense.
1: Maybe that's why her parents aren't taking it especially seriously, because they are so young, so that it's just like they're friends with like a slight crush angle. True. Right, more than you know, they're actually
0: a couple. True. Yeah, they're just like they're about to be friend zoned. They just don't know it yet. It's <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I also liked this sort of quiet subplot that was going on with Quint being a dancer or a dancer. Um, (laughs) And Jesse refers to it a few times because Quint is a student at Juilliard, which is a really big deal. He's a full-time student there, and he had to try out, obviously, to be admitted to that program. Um, And she mentions a couple of times that he had been teased a lot in his old school for being um, a little boy who was passionate about ballet dancing. Um, And it comes up a few times throughout the book, which I thought was really interesting. Again, in 1991, I guess there are parts of that that sort of fit with a lot of the pop culture that was going on at that time. And, you know, like the negative side of it tracks with a lot of um, what you would have seen or read at that time. But the fact that, yes, Quint is being teased for it, but he's also sort of disregarding it and going ahead and following his passion, I thought was really cool. And I like that Jesse was attracted to that part of him. Me too.
1: Me too. Um, I find that one of the most tiresome things I encounter in like adult women, even today, is that they can be like impatient when they're partners or when they're encountering men or suspicious when they encounter men who like aren't in a toxically masculine way afraid of everything feminine and I'm like just don't don't engage don't don't buy that line like stuff that's made for women is fantastic right exactly of course of course it's a good thing that these guys like it and that's one reason this relates back to one of my foundational beliefs which is I really just think that all first children should be girl children oh interesting Um, tell me more Because I feel like the narratives that we have in place for, like, how first children, um, like, what responsibilities they have and what kind of ambitions they should have, like, when you add those to our cultural narratives around men, Mm. like, it's a really big burden for anyone to carry. Um, They're just, like, all of these expectations and men already have all of these expectations for, like, professional and material achievement heaped on them. And then, like, all of this stuff about how stoic you're supposed to be and look. After the smaller kids, etc., etc., and with women, you know, like if you're your family's great hope, that's actually kind of great. Like it's means that you get to have a singular focus for ambition and stuff like that. But the other thing is, is I think it's really good for the kids in the younger family because there is, like I say, this cultural derision towards things that are made for women. But I think there's also a social cultural admiration for anything your older sibling is into. Like you just tend to think the stuff your older siblings are into are really cool. And so a lot of the men that i found as adults who are really broad-minded about enjoying whatever they enjoy, regardless of sort of who the audience for it is supposed to be, are men who grew up with big sisters who like, liked the stuff that their big sisters liked mm. and thought their big sisters cool. And so they never bought that whole line that, you know, everything a woman likes is by nature garbage. Oh, and therefore, that's fascinating. I like that all theory. Sure should be girl children. Thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing. Obviously, I have an older brother, and he's wonderful, and I think he turned out great, Uh, and I am the younger and the young guest, and, like, I think it worked out okay for me. So if the birth order is different in either your
0: family of origin or the family you're building yourself, I'm sure your kids will still be fine. Right. No shade at all. This is just Margaret's foundational belief of how maybe things could work in an even more perfect universe.
1: Just if we get to the point of designing these things, I just think it's something we should all consider.
0: Everybody just, like— Food for thought. Just take it as food for thought. Frozen, right. pizza, and ice cream for thought if we're in the context of <laughs> Mallory and Marianne's babysitting adventure. Exactly. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about Dawn. We're kind of going into like the increasingly more stressful situations. Mm-hmm. Don is going to the airport with her mom to pick up her little brother Jeff who's flying in from California for the holidays. And for some reason for the first like half of the book, I forgot that Jeff was actually young younger. I thought he was Don's older brother. And so there was all of this commentary about how Jeff suddenly had this like travel anxiety and I was like dude aren't you like an older teenager not no judgment <laughs> but just the way that they were talking about it I was sort of confused and then luckily one of the illustrations set me straight because it was very clear that Jeff is like a young child and Dawn and her mom are on the way to the airport and of course they're talking about the storm and is it going to divert the the flights and is Jeff going to be more afraid and again we're, we're in 1991 there's not a lot of like up to the minute information about flights so when they get to the airport, they really don't know what to expect in terms of Jeff's arrival time, and they end up stuck in the airport overnight, um, and his flight has gone to D.C. instead, so they're going to have to wait for him to come until the morning. Again, I actually think it kind of would have been fun to be stuck in the airport overnight with my mom. I would have gone nuts in Hudson Booksellers. I would have gone ham. It would have been great. So much candy, so many magazines, so many crosswords. I would have bought all the paperback books.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely the same. Uh, this was one of the ones where I was like, the children in this book, particularly since like Stacey and Dawn, they're like real mean to their moms while they're driving the cars. And it's like, chill out. Your mom right. is trying to drive in a blizzard. Like, calm down.
0: Yeah, my mom Be would not potential. have allowed this. This would not have no. gone well in my relationship with my mom. She, it, There would have been a zero tolerance policy for backseat driving. Driving, sassing in a storm, all of it would not have worked. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Uh, but they make it through okay. And Jeff is fine in the end. Uh, it was a tough thing for him, but there was like, he's 10. And I think he says that there was like an eight-year-old who was having an even harder time. And so he gets to feel like the mature
0: one on the airplane. Yeah, he also got to go stay in a hotel by himself. The flight attendant helped him, so nobody panicked. But he got to go stay in a hotel, and he got a free shoehorn, which he was very excited about. And he was going to gift that shoehorn to his stepdad for Christmas, which I thought was very sweet. And yeah, again, sort of as like a bonding moment a little bit for Dawn and her mom. I think ultimately maybe she feels a little bit guilty for giving her mom a hard time. And um, yeah, I mean, it all it all ends pretty, pretty well. I like that there is a little bit of like a depiction of flight and travel anxiety in this book because I think that that's not something that kids often see Um, and it's nice to sort of normalize that for kids that might be afraid of flying and afraid of traveling Um, maybe would reassure them that they're not the only ones.
1: Definitely. I think that that's a very good way to think about it. It's also interesting to just go back in time and see what the details
0: of flying were like before September 11th. Yeah. You could just like go up to the gate. (laughs) Yeah, they were, like, hanging out at the gate. They they had access to Hudson Booksellers and all the snacks and restaurants. I mean, if you were in this situation in, in 2020, you would just be, like, stuck in your car by the arrivals gate or, like, outside on the curb or standing by the luggage trolleys or whatever. Like, it would be much less exciting and extremely boring and even more uncomfortable. yeah. So good thing that uh, air travel was less draconian back then. It is crazy to think about the fact that you used to be able to just like walk right in and like wait for your people at the gate. That's yeah. crazy. I forget about that.
1: And It's also crazy like how acclimated we've become to how terrible it is now and like what ridiculous expectations are. I was traveling to Europe this summer and like here we have, you can only bring things of a certain size, but beyond that, there's not a limitation. So it has to be under 3.5 ounces, many sort of 3.5 ounces, things as you want to. There they have that, but you have to fit them all into like a one liter Ziploc. Oh, yeah. So I to throw away a ton of my a ton of my skin stuff. And it was just like, I don't know, guys. People who want
0: to do bad things will probably still manage to do bad things. And it's always the nicest skin stuff and like the best perfume <laughs> that you have to throw away when you just... Always. Wrong always. place, wrong time, like wrong perfume. So let's talk about Stacy, As you mentioned, Margaret, there's kind of this building tension throughout the the book about like who's gonna have it the worst and who's gonna be in the most dangerous situation and spoiler alert it's Stacy she had to go get the perm at the fancy mall because she wanted to look her best because she's sophisticated and when they're coming home the snow started and her mom decides that they should take the back roads which seems like A bad idea. I mean, not to say that a highway is, like, safer. I guess they did see a truck almost get in a really big accident, and so that's probably, that sealed the deal for her. But, like, back roads generally, like, not the right call in a snowstorm. She probably should have just, like, pulled over into the shoulder of the highway. I don't want to tell her how to drive because that's what Stacy was doing, and it wasn't (laughs) right. But that's what I would have done. a 100%. Or tried to turn back baby Right, go to the fancy mall. You could go back. Right, exactly. Yeah, go to the food court, go buy some stuff, get another perm. But instead, she goes on the back roads, and obviously that— ends up being the wrong move and they have to pull over to the side of the road and they have no idea where they are. Um, They run out of gas. Like everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And of course Stacy having diabetes, there's these additional concerns because she needs to make sure that she keeps her blood sugar up and she's now run out of snacks. I actually had a few people send me DMs when I posted that I was reading this book for the podcast who were Mm. like I've been so haunted by this book since I was a teenager that I have never not kept snacks in my car.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's that's a good thing to be haunted by, like if this book Convinces you to be more prepared in in an accident uh, or when you're stranded, like that's a great thing. They would have been much happier if they'd had one of those like heat reflecting blanket
0: thingies. Oh yeah, so smart. That would have been a much better call than the very. Mm-hmm. They just didn't have a lot going on. Um, it was scary. And then you know, Stacy's mom just like leans on the horn for a while and like thinks that that's going to fix it. And in the end, their only option is to go with this guy who's come and like knocked on the window of the car. And for me it's like this is a little bit of stranger danger like not sure if, if this is a great idea but what else are they gonna do and that's again like the tension that's building is Stacy's nervous about whether or not her mom's going to talk to this guy but in the end he ends up being really nice and he even has a baby he has mm-hmm. a baby for Stacy to hold and so that means that we can trust him right <laughs> nobody untrustworthy has babies yeah but he takes them to his house I wasn't sure how to pronounce his name I think like Mr. Scavoni or Shavone. Yeah, it's something in that ballpark. I also do not know how to pronounce it. And they have this beautiful house. It's right before Christmas time. And it's like all lit up. And this is the first Christmas that Stacy and her mom are going to be spending together since her parents got divorced. So seeing the Scavone's house all lit up and decorated kind of inspires them to like have a traditional Christmas again. Um, And the Scavone's take really good care of them. I will say that like for all of the peril that Stacy and her mom seemed to be in while they were waiting to be rescued from the car, once they get to the house, it's like kind of dull I mean it's really nice I would have liked to actually see more of what was going on with them but there was such tension building that I would have liked there to be like a little bit more of a reward in some way at the end it was a little bit unsatisfying
1: I agree with your assessment there it was a little unsatisfying just like you develop all of that tension and it's not like the most plausible way for it to be resolved like if her car is stuck like how is his car getting through all of the snow how are they getting from her car to their house you know like no plows have come through, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I guess they just kind of wanted to have that high tension there and it boiled along for the whole book. And then they just wanted to
0: end the book. <laughs> They just she just needed it to be over. She had so many threads, she just needed to get them all tied. And Definitely. throughout the book, like all of the babysitters are, are getting increasingly nervous because they're not sure where Stacy is. That's the other tension that's building, is that a lot of the other girls have been able to get in communication with each other and they're not sure where Stacy is. So even though we know as readers that Stacy is okay and safe in the home of the Scavonis, the other girls are a little bit nervous. So that was kind of sweet to like see how much they love their friend and they really are like kind of trying to stay in touch with each other and like they're really in. Investigating where they could be, which I liked. And again, is like the hallmark of this series, which is that these girls really do love each other and they're always trying to have each other's backs and trying to just like make sure that if there's anything they can do for the others, they're doing it. So I like that that was sort mm-hmm. of happening back home in Stony Brook.
1: Yeah, I feel like they could have put a little more effort into it. Yes. But, you know, right at the point where they figure out that Stacey and her mom probably aren't home and therefore might be stranded somewhere. That's also when the phones go down. So I let them off the hook for not notifying authorities that like,
0: hey, there are people stranded out there, yeah. maybe. The overarching thing about this book that I just kept coming back to again and again is like, what a different world they were living in in 1991 compared to our world now. The lack of cell phones and what that means for these people in this situation It's mind-boggling. Like, all of the things that I was like, oh, this would have been fixed by a cell phone. This would have been fixed by texting. This would have been fixed by GPS. This would have been fixed by, like, access to a weather app. That was just sort of my, like overwhelming takeaway from this book is just like everything is different (laughs) like our world (laughs) has changed so much in the last 20 30 years and we're safer in a lot of ways I mean obviously cell phones have introduced a lot of their own issues and devices really have complicated life for a lot of people and there's addiction to it and you know there's it obviously goes both ways but I think we are safer and more secure in certain ways and in certain scenarios which you see in this definitely
1: Yeah, you absolutely see in this book. I was wondering if there have also been like major advances in in like weather predicting techniques or if the weather casters in Stony Brook are just particularly terrible because they keep being like, oh, big snow is going to come tonight and then it doesn't come for like the entire week.
0: Yeah, never everybody's, so everybody's like, oh, those idiots. It. Yeah, they're like, they never know. I do feel like that's how it is with local weather sometimes. I feel like growing up, my parents, like, never believed the weather forecast.
1: I feel like every once in a while in Boston, we get predictions of big snow, and then it doesn't actually come through. But not, you know, over and over again for a week. And then big snow actually does come through, but nobody is prepared for it. It was very convenient the way it worked out for this book. It was very convenient the way it worked out for this book. And what's great is the experience that the kids will have for the rest of the school year where, like, it'll just be like a hair-trigger like school cancellation response. That's always been the way it is in Boston is we have like one terrible blizzard that knocks everything out. And then subsequent to that, at at like the barest hint of
0: snow, they're like, everything's shut down. Right, no more school ever. You guys are done until spring. Exactly. Do you wish we'd seen more of the dance? So the Winter Wonderland dance is not canceled. And at the end, we just get like sort of tidbits of of notes from each of the girls talking about their experience at the dance, I kind of felt the same. Like, there was so much anticipation about the dance, and that was something that I think a lot of readers can relate to at all ages. Mm. Even if you're, like, a younger reader, there's an aspirational element to that of, like, I can't wait to go to a dance someday. And obviously, like, there aren't that many adults like us reading this book, but for me, there's, like, a nostalgia element to that. So I kind of wish that we'd had, like, one real-time scene of it rather than just these, like, very short paragraphs looking back yeah. on how it happened.
1: Yeah, just like a scene of them, you know, getting the corsages and giving the carnations to their dates. You know, whatever. I agree. I was disappointed that we didn't get that culminating dance scene. That we just get, like, the picture of them
0: at the end. Yeah, I needed to know more about, like, their outfits. A hundred
1: percent more about their
0: outfits. The the music. I, d- I mean, I guess I liked that there wasn't as much emphasis on, like, the relationships with the boys. Um Because I think the point of the book was like, we're going to take care of each other as a community through this very stressful situation. But a little bit more about the dance would have been, I think, a better way to end the book. I completely agree. I think it would have been a really, really, I think it would have made this book even more special. Yeah. So you did not read this book or any of the Babysitter's Club books when you were growing up. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like, as a whole, looking back at this, at your reading experience, at the conversation we've just had, how does this book measure up to like maybe what your expectations are? of the Baby Babysitter's Club series as a whole might be, um, if you had specific expectations of this book. I'd just love to know a little bit about how it holds up to maybe what you were thinking it would feel like or what it would be. So
1: in a lot of ways I would say it holds up. I I was really impressed again by how well the characterizations have aged and how like little problematic material there was just like it's evidence that if you write thoughtfully even if your writing is aging you can still do okay snaps to Anne M. Martin or whichever ghostwriter was in charge of this particular book. Yes. And like I would say I guess I hoped for more plot like more exciting things and I think I'm probably I I don't regret not reading them as a kid because they wouldn't have done a lot for me at that age I think you know that age like I say I was reading fantasy novels and also a lot of agatha christie and um without um without a mystery to be solved you know i i just don't know if this would have really held my attention. But I think it's really fascinating to sort of see just like the models of femininity that were being presented to girls through this book. And obviously some of it is really traditional because they're all such child-oriented kids and they're all really great caregivers. But... It's also got that additional stuff of sort of like organizing in solidarity and uh, entrepreneurial things and genuinely thinking through sort of like the business steps of all of that different stuff. I was impressed like at the organization for the babysitters club meetings and, you know, here's the time when you can call in and book us, et cetera. And now they would have like a beautiful Google calendar. Maybe one of them would be sophisticated enough to design an app. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I really like sort of the balance between meeting girls' traditional understandings of feminine behavior and then maybe expanding that definition in feminist directions. I think that that's really cool. And that is in line with what I was expecting from the book. Uh, and I'm just glad to be sort of a little bit more conversant in this whole world.
0: Well, I'm glad that I got to be part of this first Babysitter's Club experience with you. So thank you so much for sharing that with me. It was my absolute pleasure. What else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be YA. It can be YA. Anything is really fair game. So I am,
1: as stipulated, a big mystery novel reader. And one of my favorite mystery novelists is a woman who published a out eight books in the 1950s. Uh, her name is Josephine Tay, 1950s, actually 30s to 50s. And she's written, she wrote just really wonderful books and there are just too few of them and it's a real bummer. And in recent years, a uh, present-day mystery novelist has started writing a series with Josephine Tay as the detective. Hmm. And I'm always wary of that kind of thing because sometimes they're great, but other times they're really cheesy and dumb. But I had a spare Audible credits. So I was like, all right, I'll give this a shot. And I loved it. I'm very picky about my mysteries. Uh, I like them to be—I don't like super, super dark Noir stuff. Uh, if it's too traumatizing, it's not particularly fun for me. But I also don't want there to be like like a blueberry muffin muffin recipe like in the middle of the book. <laughs> like I don't want a cat to be solving it. Okay. So there's this particular space between sort of full cozy and full grim that I like to spend time in, and these books are right in that space where you have this recurring cast of characters and they all really love and support one another and it's really fun to be around them. But like they're dealing with real
0: complicated shit in their lives. Oh, it's real fine. complicated... I mean the subtitle shit she read so you're good but thank you for thank you for anticipating that you might need to correct it but in the in the final few minutes of our conversation you're fine I'm allowed to say one shit yes great
1: I should have asked you at the beginning if it was a clean podcast because I am very bad at
0: podcasting cleanly it's not a clean podcast but we really did we were very clean until now yes I, I I focused in and I think it worked
1: out okay either way they're all dealing with heavy shit in their own lives and the Mysteries are really satisfying and well-developed, and uh, there are a lot of prominent characters in the book who are queer, which is really interesting to see sort of set in the 1930s because, of course, that was absolutely true of those spaces in the 1930s, but it's something that we don't engage with as much now. Hmm. So they're great. The first one is called An Expert in Murder. And uh, it is set in one of my favorite places for books of any stripe to be set in a theater. Amazing. Yep. And I think that they're really great. So I highly recommend those by Nicola Upson. Uh, where she is written as the detective.
0: Well, that sounds really interesting. I will include a link to that book in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to The Babysitter's Club, super special, number seven, Snowbound. And of course, links to your podcast, Margaret, Appointment Television, and to your newsletter, Two Bossy Dames, and links to your social media so that our listeners can go check you out and hear more from you. I really appreciate you chatting with me today, especially because you're feeling under the weather, and I hope you feel better <laughs> soon. Me too, me too. And but in the meantime. At least I've got screeners to watch. That's true. That's, you know what, that's, if you're going to be sick, that's like kind of the ideal circumstance in which to be sick. But I do hope you get better soon.
1: Me too. Thanks so much for having me, Allie. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast